Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming up. On ABC Radio. They have to ensure that in the job descriptions of the heads of those agencies, the Commissioner for Police and the Commissioner for Corrective Services, that a program of ensuring fair and equitable treatment is implemented. Otherwise, I think we're just going to continue on with the situation where a degree of racism, whether it's overt or casual or embedded institutional racism, just continues to occur. Systemic reform needed to maintain momentum from the Black Lives Matter movement and Surviving New England, a history of First Nations resistance and resilience on the colonial frontier. Their story of survival against all odds hasn't been done justice. And it was also a number of conversations that I had with members of my family who said to me, I want to know that our people didn't just lay down and die and let the colonizer take our country. And that was one of the main motivating factors behind me starting just to trawl through the archives and trying to uncover every possible piece of evidence of our people's fierce resistance. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Australia's attorneys general have put off making a decision on whether to raise the age of criminal responsibility until at least 2021, despite calls from legal experts and advocacy groups for the laws to be changed. Joining me to discuss this and other hot issues of the week are lawyer, poet and senior researcher at the Jumbana Institute, Alison Whittaker, and senior Indigenous fellow at the Melbourne University Law School, Eddie Cabillo. Alison, what did you make by the decision to delay changing the age of criminal responsibility for so long? It's quite frustrating. I mean, Raise the Age has been a campaign that's developed over quite some time. It has a really solid evidence base behind it. And I I just don't think the delay until 2021 is justified in any way. We have the evidence that locking children up is terrible for their health and well-being as well as like for the well-being of the community and it's infuriating to think that this decision is just going to be continually kicked down the road while it has and continues to have a real urgency for First Nations kids. Eddie, you served as Executive Director of NatSools, and that's a role that saw you advocate for the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and around this issue as well. In your opinion, how do we educate against the widely held perception that if these kids didn't commit a crime, they wouldn't be in prison? Oh, look, it's difficult. You know, outside of an Indigenous Australian community, the reality is that they perceive us as criminals. And, you know, historically, because of colonialism and, and the entrenched values and perceptions of us, really makes it difficult to make change here. You know, I think the majority of Aboriginal and Indigenous people who work in, in this space or have over decades wouldn't be surprised with the government's attitude and the decision they made. You know, they've been consistent in this space. They definitely don't care for Indigenous people. And, and, and this, this really shows it, as, you know, just pointed out, there's an urgent need to raise the age of criminal responsibility to keep young children out of prison. Um, and basically, as stated, Australia's out of step with the international human rights standards and the academic literature on, on this space. Alison, from your perspective, what are some of the alternatives to prison, particularly for minor offences, that we should be looking at for young offenders? Yeah, you would be looking at effectively intervention programs, resourcing the community, We are effectively just constrained by what we can imagine. This reflex to punish people for things, especially young people, for things like um, shoplifting a Fredo frog. It's an indictment upon our society and our capacity to actually offer care and understanding to one another. It's not just the proportionality of what's happening. It's kind of that, that reflex that we have to punish children and to continue that long tradition of punishment long into adulthood that kind of sees us facing these same problems again and again. We take things that are social and economic inequalities and then we disproportionately apply them to First Nations people, but the fact that they're applied at all is itself unjust. Uh, And then we wonder why the problems continue to escalate and that socioeconomic divides continue to widen between mob who have been incarcerated and mob who haven't. 
Eddie, in relation to the ideas around reform, I was wondering if you could share with us the role that you think the Aboriginal community-controlled sector should be playing with these sorts of issues, obviously with your background in NATSALS, but you've also been involved with other national organisations like ATSIC that have looked to make these changes. How can the community-controlled sector be empowered to be more proactive in this space? Yeah, look, I, as you know, I did work with the um, Aboriginal Trial Federal Legal Service and I've been a board member on Aboriginal Legal Service. And look, I don't think they can do too much more, to be perfectly honest. They've been at the coalface fighting, you know, whether it be in the health space or the justice space or education or what have you. They've been advocating, utilising research or, and evidence that they've produced over the last 50 years in the case of justice space. But no one seems to be listening. And that's reinforced by the fact that you know, we've had a Royal Commission into this space, which is 30 years old now, and which made 339 recommendations across a wide range of policy areas. And, you know, the largest number of recommendations related to policy nationally in criminal justice, incarceration and death in custody. So it all comes back to government and overall the population of this country, you know, and then you've got to question whether we are a systemically racist country. And, and that's, that seems to be where we're at at the moment, and I'm not too sure what more our more can do in regards to changing that. You're quite right about the strong advocacy role that the organisations have played, and they are at the coalface. Do you think the new framework that's being announced that sees the community-controlled sector working hand-in-hand in government with the Close the Gap agenda might be a step forward in terms of giving a bit more say? Oh, look, that's a very deep question there. They obviously are conflicted as service providers who are contracted by government to provide these services. And they're conflicted because, you know, they also got to look after their rights for their mob. And usually, in my experience, in the history that I've worked in that space, is it's usually money and that tends to be the um, threatening method of getting organisations to pull in the line in regards to government thinking. And that then becomes an issue. And I think... You know, we're still all waiting for the, um, the actual close the gap targets to come out, which were due out last week. And in that time, we've heard some really strange leaks from, from the actual agreement where we're looking at a um, 2093 or parity. I mean, that's ridiculous. And, and I saw something yesterday that's uh, 2060, which is still, you know, a significant time. And the actual framework is only for 10 years. So for me, there's a lot of um, conflicts in regards to what I'm hearing. Obviously also making news has been the COVID-19 pandemic, especially with how it's affecting Victoria. But I wanted to start in Sydney. Of course, there was a lot of focus on a Black Lives Matter rally held earlier in the week that was particularly about putting attention onto the case of David Dungay. Alison, I wondered if you could share your thoughts on holding a protest during the pandemic and how that can be balanced against the fact that the family really wants to get their message out. I think there's always going to be a balanced risk that community have to take in doing political action right now in the current circumstance. But it's a risk that effectively everybody's engaging with. Like when you go to the shops, you go to an indoor space with definitely more than 20 people in it. It's part of that kind of small assessment of risk and mitigation that people make every day. With the exception that in this case, people are kind of theoretically gathered for a common purpose, which is to assert that Black Lives Matter and so have a lot of incentive to effectively mitigate the pandemic risk that's around them by social distancing, by distributing masks and sanitizer as they did on the day and they have done consistently for the past couple of months when rallying. To say that there is no risk, of course, is not accurate. There's risk in everything that we do right now. But for First Nations people and especially for the families of loved ones who have died inside, the greater risk is their silence. And that has to kind of be taken into account as well. Eddie, you're in Victoria at the moment in the lockdown. What have you made of the leadership performance of Daniel Andrews through this pandemic? Yeah, um, to be perfectly honest, I I think he's done a a fairly good job. I mean, obviously there have been some huge outbreaks and some issues in regards to, you know, hotels and, and also now the elderly respite care places. I just, you know, it's a pandemic. It hasn't had been seen in 100 years. I think Australia as a whole has done a fairly good job. But, you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm, I'm not an expert in this space, but 
as a Victorian community person, I feel quite safe at the minute, but it's our second lockdown, and I think we're going to a third. But um, it comes back to individuals, whether they can just do the right thing. And like we just mentioned, that there's people going shopping and there's a whole heap of people doing things correctly, and there's obviously some that ain't. So it is a worry at the moment, but personally, I think he's done a fairly good job. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barron, and my guests tonight are Alison Whitaker and Eddie Cabello. Iconic cheese brand Kuhn will be no more in Australia after its Canadian parent company made the decision to change the name after years of consumer pushback. The issue has also been a talking point in the United States with the NFL team, the Washington Redskins, changing their name after pressures from sponsors. And we've seen the Redskins lollies here also look to do a brand change. Alison, good decisions and why now? Of course, good decisions. The Washington Redskins team in particular has been under really concerted pressure from the First Nations community over in the US to change their name effectively from a racial slur that emerged from the days when scalps of First Nations people were treated as commodity. The rebranding of Coon Cheese here in Australia and the consideration, I think, of the name change of Redskins really, really long overdue, really, really simple things that can stop the normalisation of uh, interpersonal racism and slurs in our day-to-day life. What's shocked me is the controversy and the, the, the willingness of people to really cling to these names for reasons that don't make a lot of sense, the nostalgia around racist branding of food products in particular. I'm also thinking of a case in Canada about uh, a logo, a racist logo of a First Nations woman uh, on a popular brand of butter there. There seems to be something happening in 2020 where pushes for systemic change are being turned into PR opportunities um, that sometimes go a little bit south. But I'm cautiously optimistic that removing these kind of normalising images and words from products is going to do something, I guess, in the background about what we can justify. Eddie, you talked earlier about systemic racism and racism really as being pretty normalised through the broader Australian community. Do you think these sorts of steps make a difference? And I guess also, as Alison said, there has been some pushback with people, I guess, saying it's the old political correctness gone mad. What are your thoughts around that too? Uh, well, can I state I actually like Jim Chief, but... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, listen, I've been called all sorts of names in the duration of my uh, life. And um, even with the keen cheese, I was called a few names around it because of it, whether someone had it at school or something. And, you know, these things hurt deeply for people of colour, particularly. And the times we're in, it's just critically not correct. And it does hurt. And racism, all sorts of racism, particularly when I was a discrimination commissioner. And it, it just flows on and it hurts everyone that it attracts and unfortunately people got to realise that it does hurt people and, and they, they have to learn it. But that's just not acceptable now and that, that's just it and, 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 and trying to brush it off with, you know, too politically correct is what um, minorities are used to and telling us to get over it and, and move on and so those sort of attitudes don't help the process of healing and changing the name, that goes a long way and I think people appreciate that. Well, finally tonight, a Queensland mother has felt the wrath of her salty ex-boyfriend after he plastered her phone number on posters advertising a Chewbacca roaring competition with the promise of a $100 prize for the best imitation of the iconic Star Wars character. The woman's phone became inundated with calls, but it did get me thinking, although I would not want that to happen to me. What is a time that you have been stitched up by friends and family playing a gag on you, Eddie? Oh, me first. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I grew up living with my, um, my uncle and his family, and he had seven children. And we played footy, and we'd always afterwards go out and and have a good time. But we, when we hit like early morning, and it was time to go home, we'd all make sure we'd go home with each other or find one of us so that we could all go home together with uh, someone else. <laughs> because their father would wake up like three in the morning, wait for us to come home and scare us. And, <laughs> oh, no. and like, we'd, we'd, we'd know he's, he's around the yard somewhere, but we'd just be like, well, this is plague, you know? And then we go, oh, sure, he must be asleep. And then next thing he comes out of the cupboard and everyone just screams and runs, you know? And 
yeah, he passed on now, but he was a great old uncle and I really miss him. But um, he had my heart racing a few times there. Hopefully it doesn't pop up in the in the front yard to scare you again, Eddie. No, I'll be running for sure then. <laughs> Alison, what about you? Anyone ever, families and friends dead to play a trick on you? Oh, they played a really long game. I was a big Kesha fan in the, the late noughties, Kesha, the pop singer. But, of course, she had that quite big career break over a, a contract dispute with an abusive manager and label. Uh, and in that time, my family all gathered together to convince me that she was dead. Oh, I and mean. I didn't actually, I didn't actually oh. figure out that she was alive until her comeback tour, which I was like, oh, this is such poor taste. This is just like what they did to Prince and his hologram. Oh. Uh, someone had to break the news to me that Kesha was, in fact, alive. Wow. <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> it is very mean. And you know what? Six years, it's a long investment in a prank, and they did it. Good on them. Well, I've got to say thank you for sharing those traumatic experiences with us and for being with us this evening on Speaking Out as we did a deep dive into a whole range of issues. My guests were lawyer, poet, and senior researcher at the Jambana Institute at UTS, Alison Whittaker, and senior Indigenous fellow at the Melbourne University Law School, Eddie Cabillo. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Over the past few months, the Black Lives Matter movement has increased awareness of systemic racial bias and led to calls for the reform of the criminal justice system. But how can we guarantee long-lasting change? Would prioritising First Nations-led initiatives lead to greater social outcomes for our people? To find out, I'll be joined by the country's first Indigenous silk, Tony McAvoy. That's coming up, but right now some music from Troy Cassadaly. Here he is alongside Shane Howard with Riverboy. I was born and raised on the river It's the only life that I know People around here have put a name on me And I hear it wherever I go They call me River Boy, River Boy A good-for-nothing River Boy This whole world don't hold a whole lot of joy when you're nothing but a river boy I do a lot of fishing on the river To make my living easy When I take my catch to the marketplace The people call out to me And they say River boy, hey river boy Got any fish today there, river boy I sell my wares, but nobody cares But the feelings of a river boy There's a pretty girl works at the marketplace I see her there every day But when I try to talk to her I can hear her papa say Come away from that river boy He's a river boy Nothing but a riffraff and river boy No girl of mine's gonna waste her time Only good for nothing river boy So I head my boat back up the river Back to my old fishing place I'm afraid this old river's gonna overflow From the tears running down my face I'm nothing but a, a river boy a river boy It good for nothing, river boy This whole world don't 
can't hold a whole lot of joy when you're nothing but a river boy. This whole world don't hold a whole lot of joy when you're nothing but a river boy. That was Troy Cassadaly with River Boy. The song is a collaboration with Shane Howard and taken from his 1994 album, Borrowed in Blue. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. It's been two months since the death of African-American man George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis. In the United States, the Black Lives Matter movement has focused specifically on police brutality enacted against African-American communities. But here in Australia, it has resonated with a number of different groups and issues, including police violence against black youth, abuse, negligence, Indigenous deaths in custody and systemic racial bias. Tony McAvoy, SC, has been a barrister since 2000 and senior counsel since 2015. He currently chairs the New South Wales Bar Association First Nations Committee and is a member of the New South Wales Bar Indigenous Joint Working Party on Over-Incarceration. He was also co-senior counsel assisting the Dondale Royal Commission. Tony, welcome back to Speaking Out. Yes, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Larissa. What are your reflections on the events of the past few months since the death of George Floyd? Um, Apart from being heartened by the response from people all across the community to uh, this problem that has plagued Aboriginal and Black people of colour all around the world for for many, many decades, I was uh, interested to note the responses of the various uh, governments to what was being said and and called for. In particular, I note that in New South Wales, the police minister seems to be opposed to any uh, rallies and and marches, whereas in other places we are witnessing uh, around the world that the police are kneeling and and, showing solidarity with protesters. So that's been interesting to observe. Were you surprised that a death in the United States of a a black man in the circumstances of George Floyd shone such a light on the issue in Australia? I was surprised by the number of people that turned out, yes. There was a a weekend in June when there were marches and uh, rallies nationally and the turnout was really sensational. We haven't seen that sort of support for the Aboriginal over-incarceration and death in custody issues uh, before, I, I don't think. Do you have any thoughts about what needs to be done to ensure the momentum of this issue isn't lost? As you say, that's, a, that's an unprecedented level of support for those issues in Australia, it feels like. Yes, well, I, I think that we need to continue to have the rallies and protests and we need to continue to present to the community in a, in, a, in a mainstream media the ongoing issues that are arising. But we also need to be able to discuss and articulate for the broader community the ways in which they can be involved and the, the outcomes that we really want. And much of that work was done in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the uh, 329 recommendations that came out of that report in 1991 and there's been a a strong call for people to uh, and governments to renew their focus on those recommendations and to ensure that they're well uh, implemented. The most recent uh, example of a a government taking some notice of halfway with Aboriginal people uh, created is is the recent statement by the Attorney General in Western Australia in relation to the uh, arrest of uh, a woman by the name of uh, Kira Ronan. Um, she was a mother who attended at, uh, at a police station in response to a warrant that was issued by the court and she was arrested and strip searched and cavity searched and kept in, in uh, the lockup overnight because she couldn't attend court on the day she was supposed to give evidence uh, about having been the victim of domestic violence. She was in hospital at the time and she rang the court and told them that she couldn't attend. The police sergeant in charge of the matter asked the magistrate to issue a bench warrant for her 
the magistrate issued the death warrant and she found out about it and presented herself at the police station and was treated in this abhorrent manner. The Attorney General in Western Australia took the uh, step, and, uh, and it's not something you often hear from an Attorney General. He, he made the observation that if this woman, who was an Aboriginal woman, had been a white mother from one of the more affluent suburbs of uh, Cottesloe or, or the similar suburbs, this would never have happened. In his view, uh, can only be put down to the the fact that she was an Aboriginal woman. And having people in important uh, positions, such as the Attorney-General in Western Australia, making those sorts of remarks, uh, shows that I think the, the marches and the protests and the whole Black Lives Matter movement is having some impact. It seems that one thing that comes into focus when there are deaths in custody is the behaviour of individual police or individual individuals working in the prison system. But those people come from the wider community and so their attitudes are reflective of broader societal attitudes. How do you think we can change those broader community attitudes? In my view at least within the government agencies, we have to demand that it is driven from the top down. It has to be something that the ministers, the police ministers and the justice ministers uh, subscribe to and the correctional services ministers and the juvenile justice ministers. And they have to ensure that in the, in the job descriptions of the heads of those agencies, the Commissioner for Police and the Commissioner for Corrective Services, that a program of ensuring fair and equitable treatment is implemented. Otherwise, I think we're just going to continue on with the situation where a degree of racism, whether it's overt or casual or embedded institutional racism, just continues to occur. And so we need to be in a position where racist jokes in the police station are not tolerated and that there is, an, there is a, an obligation upon other police officers to report that type of behaviour. We need to ensure that the systems by which uh, Aboriginal children are arrested and brought before the courts are ones which are fair and take into account the circumstances of, of those children and their families. Tony, as part of the conversations that have started around Black Lives Matter and First Nations Lives Matter movements, there is talk of the justice reinvestment programs and the concept of defunding the police. What are your thoughts and are those proposals realistic? I think they're absolutely realistic. The justice reinvestment programs have been implemented in various locations around the world and there is a trial which has been underway in western New South Wales and northwestern New South Wales in Burke for a number of years and um, the, that program has been reviewed and it has been shown, shown to make considerable uh, savings for the government in, in economic terms but it has a, a, a reduced the, number, the rate of offending, it has increased school attendance rates and um, on the whole, it has been an extraordinary success. And that program seems to me to be one of the mechanisms which really takes to heart and fulfills the promise of community-led responses to justice. And, and that's really what people are asking for. Uh, all around the country, people are saying, Look, we know what we can do to... Um, to work with our kids and our young people and the people who are in trouble. And we just need to be able to do that. And it seems to me that the criminal justice system in Australia is resistant to that. And one of the examples of the resistance, I suppose, is that this program, which seems to be, by all accounts, very, um, very, very positive in its results, it hasn't been extended. Yet, um, on the other side of New South Wales, northeastern New South Wales, which been told of the largest prison in Australia being built for some 1,700 inmates. And it seems entirely inconsistent to spend that amount of money on a new jail when there are cheaper, more cost-effective options that are better and create healthier communities. So I, the settings are all wrong as far as I can see, and that goes to the top level of government. 
You were the co-senior counsel assisting the Dondale Royal Commission. So I was wondering if you could share with us your thoughts on what are better strategies for dealing with Aboriginal young people who are at risk of contact with the criminal justice system and how we can avoid that contact in the first place. There's been a, a huge call from the Aboriginal community for resources to be able to engage in, in what's called in, in the justice circles early intervention programs so that programs that are designed to help create healthy communities and healthy families and help families deal with um, the things that might, they might be dealing with to create uh, healthy environments for children. And a great amount of international research indicates that, that if you are prepared to invest in community, then the results for the children who are in vulnerable situations are that they don't tend to get into the justice system as often or as early. And the statistics tell us that once involved in the justice system, once they've been to court or been to juvenile detention, the likelihood of proceeding on to adult prison is very high. But if you can keep them out of the justice system, that um, eventually many of these children will grow out of the phase that they're going to and, and continue on to have successful lives that, in which they are able to make a great con- contribution. Um, at the moment, where we seem to be intent on punishing children, and that was certainly the observation in the Northern Territory Royal Commission, that the whole system seemed to be geared towards punishment and retribution rather than treating the situation in the Northern Territory as one which was a, a community and a social issue with, with a, a whole array of medical overlays. Tony, I've been asking you big sweeping questions tonight and I guess my final question is just as sweeping, but I know you've thought a lot about treaties and the pathway forward. What are your reflections on how they might relate to these criminal justice system issues that we've been discussing tonight? Yes, well, the whole thrust of Aboriginal empowerment really is about self-determination. Treaties are just one aspect of that. It seems to me from looking overseas that treaties have the capacity, if they contain all the appropriate elements, to provide for a level of self-determination and self-governance, which is consistent with and empowering to Aboriginal self-determination. So in British Columbia, treaty nations that have entered treaties have certain jurisdiction over matters uh, affecting their lands and and their peoples, and they have a number of those treaties uh, a substantial role in the decisions around child protection. Just having that greater role in, in Australia, I think, um, make a huge difference. The treaty process, though, is is one of the a number, but it certainly is one that I am a strong advocate for because it allows us to negotiate the control of the outcome. One of the recent occurrences in the United States is the Supreme Court decision in the McGirt matter in which the uh, Supreme Court of the US found that the United States government needed to be held to its word in respect of the creation of the Native American reservation in eastern eastern Oklahoma. And there has been all of this media about what's going to happen now. How is it going to work? Is everybody going to lose their land? Are we, are we going to have all these uh, these developments that have been going on in the legal? And the Native American leaders have been very careful to say, we have already been discussing the consequences of this decision, should it be handed down the way we anticipated it would. And we see that there will be a shared jurisdiction with the United States and with the state of Oklahoma. And and by shared jurisdiction, they mean having the right to make decisions about land and people. And that is really the essence of what treaties are about. And I um, look forward to the day when my people are making the decisions according to our agreement or agreements with the government about our land. Tony, thank you so much for being with us this evening and sharing your considerable legal knowledge and insights on these very complex issues. 
It's been my pleasure, Larissa. Tony McAvoy is one of the country's leading native title barristers and the country's first Indigenous silk. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. A story which is increasingly being told in Australia is that of the massacre of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that occurred in the aftermath of colonisation. Whether it be through oral stories passed down through generations or a growing body of documented evidence, the true extent of frontier violence is reaching new audiences and challenging preconceived ideas about our nation's past. Surviving New England, a history of Aboriginal resistance and resilience through the first 40 years of the colonial apocalypse is a new book highlighting First Nations resistance to colonisation. Through the use of archive newspapers and government records, the book paints a detailed picture of Aboriginal people's fight for survival during the early colonial period. Callum Clayton Dixon is the author of the book and he joins me now. Callum, welcome to Speaking Out. Dangana. This is the first time we've had you on the show, so I was wondering if you could share with us where you grew up and what was your upbringing like? Sure. So I was actually born over in Aotearoa in 1994, and we, like my family, moved over to Australia in 2000. And yeah, that was when I was eight years old. Uh, I didn't quite know what to make of it as an eight-year-old. But then uh, as I got a bit older, uh, in my late teens, I started visiting my family here in Armidale, spending a lot of time down here, getting to know my extended family. And in 2015, when I was 20, I moved to live here uh, on my grandfather's country, and I've been here ever since for the last five years. Now, tell us about the language revival program that you've been involved in. So, the language program, originally we established the Anwan Language Revival Program in 2016, I think it was in April. So, a group of us got together, a group of Anwan people here in Armidale, and made the decision to start a community-based, community-driven language revitalisation effort. And the main project that we uh, set out to undertake was the development of the first Anwan language knowledge book. So as comprehensive as possible, uh, a dictionary and a grammar, because there hasn't been one of those produced as of yet. So over the last four or five years, um, that's one of the projects that I've been working on, on and off. And now that's the main part of my PhD project uh, is to produce that dictionary and grammar. And the language program have held our first ever language classes here in Armidale in late 2018 for the local Aboriginal community. And we've also been doing some classes at the local Aboriginal preschool and primary school, Minimbar, over the last couple of years as well. So amongst all of this really important cultural work, you've found time to write another book, uh, Surviving <laughs> New England. What were your motivations for this project, especially since you're obviously so immersed in your culture in, in other ways? Well, originally, I had no real intention of writing anything about our people's history. I was much more interested in like kind of the reclamation of language and culture from the archives rather than telling the history of, of those early years of colonisation and our people's experience through it. But what I found quickly when just trying to come up with a simple explanation as to why the Anawan language, as compared to Gumbanga, Dangati, Gatang on the coast, um, or Kamilaroi out west, like people often asked us, like, why is Anawan so much worse off? Like, why have you only got a few hundred words recorded? Why haven't you had speakers for decades and decades and decades? So I started looking into the uh, local histories and, and other writings on the colonial history of Anawan country. And what I very quickly found was that these histories more or less just had a chapter at the beginning of the book, which would make some more or less token mention of the tribes that once occupied this area. Uh, these were kind of station histories or chapters in local history books or papers in, in academic journals. And then on and off, they'd mention, oh, there was some Aborigines working on uh, this station and that station, and they had relatively good relations with the squatters and, and the settlers, and there was very little violence involved in that early colonial process. And so I thought, well, like our people haven't been done justice, like our ancestors haven't been done justice by these writings. 
in terms of their fierce resistance to colonisation, to the invasion, and their story of survival against all odds hasn't been done justice. There was that element to it, and it was also a number of conversations that I had with members of my family, uh, one uncle in particular, who said to me something along the lines of, like, I want to know that our people didn't just lay down and die like, and let the coloniser take our country and, and take our lives. He said he wanted to know that our people fought back just like Pemaway did, just like Sitting Bull, Geronimo and the Māori in, in New Zealand did, because he'd, he'd heard all these stories about other Indigenous peoples elsewhere fighting back, but he just hadn't heard that same thing about his own people. And I guess that was one of the main motivating factors behind me starting just to trawl through the archives as deeply as possible and as thoroughly as possible, trying to uncover every possible piece of evidence of our people's fierce resistance and their story of survival through that really, really tumultuous time. Were there particular stories of resistance that stood out for you in researching the book? I think there was a couple that involved warriors that were actually named, because it's quite rare in the archive, in regards to our area anyway, to find names of the resistance fighters. And there was two that we managed to come across that weren't just English names that had been bestowed upon Aboriginal people like Jemmy or Bobby or, or names like that. These were language names that, that had actually appeared in the newspapers. Like there was one warrior by the name of Wombardi. And in 1837, his name appeared throughout the uh, Sydney newspapers as having been involved in a coordinated resistance activity down in the Port Macquarie district. But the reason why we're able to link him to, to New England is that they kept talking about the fact that they couldn't find an interpreter for him because the language that he spoke was so different to anything else that Europeans had ever come across in the coastal districts. And they said that he was a native of New England. So not only was that an Aboriginal man, an Aboriginal warrior who, who had his language name printed in the colonial newspapers at that time, but it also talked about uh, and made reference to the uniqueness of our culture and language here up on the tableland. And a second person who was named in the papers was in, I think, it might have been February or March 1839, and he was a warrior who was involved in a, an attack on a station very nearby to where my grandfather grew up on the Inglebar Aboriginal Reserve. And, yeah, so there Tamo, the, an Aboriginal from the, from the Inglebar area. So even though they might seem just like very, very small, insignificant snippets of information, for us they're quite uh, important and valuable because we're able to put names to our ancestors who were involved in that fierce resistance. It's really interesting hearing you talk about how you've gone through this archive. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that process. And in particular, I imagine a lot of what you were looking at was written from a colonial point of view. So since you were trying to, I guess, in a way, reinterpret it, how did you approach that? Well, for those early years of frontier conflict on the table and in almost every instance in terms of articles in the papers or reports by the Crown Lands Commissioner, the incidents of frontier conflict were referred to as more or less just random acts of violence committed by the blacks. That was how they were portrayed. Like there was no reference to or very, very little reference, very rare references to the motivations of what was, in effect, a guerrilla war of resistance. So I had to kind of pull whatever bits and pieces out and deduce from the evidence a broader kind of strategy and motivation behind all of these different incidents of frontier conflict. Like they weren't just random, they were, they were part of a sustained war of resistance. So there's bits and pieces of evidence, quotes in the archive from people at the time and also a few decades later where they recognised that it was a war of resistance. There was a, an article written in a newspaper in the 1880s about New England and the author talked about how our people defended our land against the white invader with tact and vigour. So that even though at the time, in the 1830s, 40s and even into the 1860s, there was very little recognition of our people's concerted intentional resistance effort to expel the, the coloniser and to stem the tide of the colonial occupation, later on, 
there was more of that kind of recognition and and there was there was another guy in the in the 1920s or late maybe 1918 something like that who wrote a very very similar thing talking about how there was a war and used those kinds of terms and then you move forward into say the 1980s 1990s and even closer to today and people have trouble recognizing that conflict as war yet these white historians and writers way back then were quite happy to call it that I imagine the book has two key audiences, one, of course, being non-Indigenous people learning more about their history, and the other, of course, being First Nations people, particularly of your country. From your perspective as the author, what are you hoping those audiences will take away from the book? For our own mob, I think it's a matter of, like, uh, I've heard and read bits and pieces about how older people from maybe a couple of generations ago, like they've written in a book or or been interviewed and, and said something along the lines of we don't really talk about those dark times. Like we wanna we, we don't want to not kind of talk about those horrific things that happened in the past. And then there's been the entire conspiracy of silence whereby the history books have written our people's story of resistance and resilience during that early period written out of the history and it's all kind of clouded in mystery in many ways or it just gets a mention in a footnote or some minor reference in a first chapter of a book. So I guess my hope for Aboriginal people, for my people here on the Tableland, is that our people can take pride in that kind of reconstructed history of our people's fierce resistance like my uncle wanted to to know about. Like we all know that our people fought back but it's just those details of fallen out of people's knowledge and, and memory due to both that conspiracy of silence and just the sheer pain and trauma of that time and subsequent years. And with uh, local non-Aboriginal people, like there's been quite a positive response so far like and a lot of interest and people saying that they're reading the landscape in a very different way. So when they're driving across country, say from Armidale to the coast or going towards Dorigo, seeing all the signposts to places like Majors Point or Majors Creek, which is named after Major Edward Park, who was a notorious terror to local Aboriginal people and was involved in a major massacre in 1852, or Poison Swamp Creek on the way from Urala to, to Tamworth or just on the other side of Bendemere, where colonists in either the mid or late 1830s took arsenic and put it in milk and gave it to um, local Aboriginal people there. So just those kind of place markers and, and signs, like physical signs in the landscape, people able to read them in, in a different way. Or, or uh, Terrible Vale. Terrible Vale Station was one of the early stations taken up in southern New England, uh, named after a man known as Terrible Billy, William Stevenson, who shot a large number of Aboriginal people on the creek on the Terrible Vale run. So just, I think, people have been able to get a better understanding of the landscape along which and upon which they travel and live on an everyday basis, even walking around or driving around town in Armidale, the street signs that have the names of some of the people mentioned in the book, either simply as people who've written about Aboriginal people back in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, or like there's a sign in Armidale for uh, Allingham Street, and there was an Allingham in 18, I think it was 1864, Edward Allingham Jr., who was involved in one of the last confrontations or conflicts with uh, resistance fighters near the Gorge country. He was the superintendent, the manager of, was, I think it was the Guerra or Hillgrove Station, and a group of resistance fighters that I think were made up of people from the coast, so the Maclay, the Bellinger, and maybe even the Clarence River, and then people from New England were up on the table and having been driven up here by the native police who'd been brought down from Queensland and they'd been raiding stations and they'd been seen carrying and using large amounts of firearms and stockpiles of ammunition which they'd managed to get as payment for labouring on stations down the coast. So this Edward Allingham went out and actually had a confrontation with these warriors on the edge of the falls who'd taken off with four or five hundred sheep, sacked one of the uh, huts on the outstation at Cooney Creek. So these names are all throughout the book that people can see around town here in Armidale and across the region. Callum, it strikes me doing this work that it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on the importance of truth-telling, which has obviously become something that is part of the reform agenda nationally. What are your thoughts on why that's important? 
Well, I think you look over in, in Russia where you had Joseph Stalin, brutal dictator, rule for over a decade or something like that, and millions of people were killed or died under his brutal regime. And as pretty much as soon as he left, you had the following Russian government institute a process of what they call, I think, is known as de-Stalinisation, where they started pulling down all the old statues. Some of them they even blew up with dynamite and to try and get rid of that cult around him and what he did. So I think you can apply that same kind of idea to what needs to take place here in Australia and that kind of broader conversation that's happening here and elsewhere around the world where slavers and people who perpetrated these massive acts of violence against Indigenous people or mob in Africa, you can apply that to our context here where you've got places like Majors Creek and Majors Point or uh, McDonald Park right in the middle of Armidale, which is named after the first Commissioner of Crown Lands here in New England, who oversaw the massacre of nine Aboriginal people up near Glen Innes in early 1840. These names in the landscape are linked back to the original crimes that were committed against our people way back when. But I think the conversation needs to go beyond ripping down statues and removing plaques and things like that because simply removing those things lets them off the hook, in a, uh, essentially, I think. So unless there's actual reforms that go with the removal of these statues and monuments and plaques and all that, then it's more or less another instance of simply symbolism because with that whole de-Stalinisation process that went on over in Russia and in the Soviet Union, there wasn't just the removal of Stalin's statues, there was a whole lot of political and, I think, legal reforms as well that went with it. And I think that same approach needs to be taken here, where we look at these people and what they were involved in in the first place. So these squatters like Major Edward Park or the New England Crown Lands Commissioner, they were involved in the dispossession of Aboriginal people in the 1830s, 1840s onwards. There needs to be those fundamental questions of reparations and land returns. Those questions need to be brought up in the conversation and addressed alongside the symbolic removal of these statues and plaques and and so on. Well, finally tonight, and very importantly, how can people get a hold of the book? How can they get a copy? So you can either get Surviving New England from... Uh, some of the bookshops here in Armidale. I think some of them sell copies on, online through their online shops like Boo Books and Reader's Companion as well. Otherwise, you can order them directly from Newara Aboriginal Corporation, which is what the Animal Language Revival Program has been rebranded as earlier in the year. So you can contact us at revivinganawan, A-N-A-I-W-A-N, at gmail.com. Well, Callum, thank you so much for being with us this evening and sharing your insights that have come out of this really important work. No worries. Callum Clayton Dixon is the author of the book Surviving New England, A History of Aboriginal Resistance and Resilience Through the First 40 Years of the Colonial Apocalypse. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.